Welcome to a brand new episode of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. Today we have on Julie Bogart. She's the creator of the award-winning Innovative Brave Writer program, teaching writing and language arts to thousands of families every year, as well as the Homeschool Alliance, a coaching and mentoring program for home educators. She homeschooled her uh, now-grown children for 17 years and is the founder of Brave Learner Home which supports homeschooling parents through coaching and teaching. She's also taught as an adjunct professor of theology at Xavier University. And Julie is the author of The Brave Learner. And her newest book is called Raising Critical Thinkers, <laughs> A Parent's Guide to Growing Wise Kids in the Digital Age. Welcome, Julie. Thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. And to as we usually do to start off with a passage in this case from jo from Julie's book, mm -hmm. Julie writes, our kids need to know that if they do overturn beliefs or opinions, they can survive attacks or challenges from followers on social media. Mm -hmm. You could let them know they will not lose ground in building a meaningful life, even if they experience rejection by extended family members. You can help your young people learn how to set boundaries and find community support. You can show them that they are leading the lives of integrity, not pretense, and are worthy of respect and kindness. Remind them that their values is not contingent on agreement from others. Mm -hmm. Our students need to believe that they can rely on parents and teachers who will stand by them, not abandon them, even when mm -hmm. we find their reasoning limited or incomplete. Let me be blunt. You can't, you can't be the community that ejects your child from membership. Your child's pursuit of intellectual honesty deserves to be honored by you, or they will learn to be propagandists for a position, or worse, they will secretly hold their subversive beliefs until they're out from under your control. So I love that so much, man. Um, so what that makes me think of essentially is the sort of idea that you have authoritarian parents, well, not even just idea. I mean, it's actually true. Uh, you have like authoritarian parents who in some way think that just because you can kind of instill certain behaviors in your kids, that that also in turn means that you can instill certain beliefs. So what came to mind for me is that like, I remember when I was a kid, my mom and my stepdad at the time, they used to try to like ban me from watching professional wrestling. So like, I love professional wrestling. Oh. I was like, well, I, I used to watch it like three, four times a week. And they would tell me, oh, well, that's it. You're not allowed to watch it. It's really violent. You know, it's going to make you really hateful. You're going to start like beating people up. You're already getting into trouble in school, yada, yada. And all that made me do is just like want to watch it even more. So I'm like, what is that going to do? Is that going to actually make me believe that professional wrestling is bad just because you say it is? Uh, it's not how it happened. So Julie, can we talk about what it's like to actually raise a critical thinker as opposed to raising a conformist? Yes, uh, I love that question. That example is so powerful, isn't it? A lot of times what we think we're doing as parents is we are training them in our values when really what we're doing is we're driving their different values underground. So we're not getting a chance to actually see exposed to the sunlight the way they're processing and thinking. We spend more time thinking that if we just enforce our ideals, somehow they will eventually internalize those and discard the ones that don't make us happy. To raise a critical thinker means first, to have the self-awareness that your own position comes from a set of biases, perspectives, community loyalties, and identities that are your own. And each person in your family, in your community, and at large comes with that same packaging, their identity, their community identity, their loyalty to that community, the belief structure they were raised with, the geographical location where they grew up, all of those things. So when we're looking at our children, I like to say that the most important part of raising kids is to learn to tolerate dissent. Dissent in the family is like chlorine in the pool. It keeps everyone mm -hmm. honest, keeps them clean. 
when we don't tolerate dissent, we actually just drive all of that subversive thinking underground. And they may act out like you, you know, still finding ways to watch wrestling, or they may conform. And then what they do is they don't know themselves. They start looking for outside authorities to dictate and guide them because they do not trust their own ability to evaluate evidence. Hmm. Yeah. So, and it's like when I remember when I was watching professional wrestling, I would just do it like with the sound off. And then, so I remember my stepdad yelling down the stairs. He'd be like, I know you're watching wrestling. Turn that shit off. And I'm like, what, me? No, no, no. I'm just reading a book. I'm like, I'm not doing any of that. So it's so funny how like we still think that something like that works. And we think that something, again, in some ways that we can make children conform to ideas as though like, you know, as like they would conform to behaviors. So, I mean, for you, Alan, does anything like that come up? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, honestly, I didn't even know what nuanced thinking was until my early 20s. No, I, the first time I learned about it, I was like, I was shocked. I was like, oh, okay, there's actually a term for this, you know, uh, one person thinks this way. No, not even that there's there could be more than one layer to a particular idea or to a belief or uh, to a situation. Right. And I used to think uh from all sorts of point of views when I was a young child, right? And yes. I was always told, no, there's only one particular way, you know, it's my way or, or the highway, so to speak, right? And that kind of got uh, suppressed, that that side of me, right? And I always thought it was wrong to think of all these different point of views. Why does that person think the way they do? Uh, am, I, am I correct to think the way I am? Are, are my beliefs correct? Is, are my beliefs factual? Is this an opinion? Is this identity at work? Is right. this ego, right? Right. And when I started to learn these concepts, and in fact, and especially read the book, uh, by the way, I have to say this too. This probably, and I'm not just saying this, this is not lip service. Honestly, this one might be one of the most important books I've, I've read this year. Because, huh. yeah, because the principles, the values, and the activities also as well uh, in the book uh, they, they can encourage, uh, parents or teachers to really instill, uh, critical thinking skills, uh, in children at a young age, which, mm. you know, we, I mean, it's, there are areas where that's taught, right. But it's not as yet widespread as, as, you know, as we would ideally like that to be. And so I, I have already seen like the, the reviews on Amazon. It looks amazing. <laughs> I, I hope that, more and more people get exposed to this this level of thought. Yeah, and he was saying this to me before the show started. Too. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, I love hearing that. You know, I think a lot of times when adults talk about critical thinking, they think about it this way. I'm really good at thinking about what's wrong with the other guy's argument. <laughs> That's what they think they mean. Yeah. And, they're, and they almost always think it's related to politics or social issues or religious beliefs. When critical thinking is a tool we use just to figure out the fastest way to get to the supermarket, critical thinking is operational in every decision we make all day long. And so what we wanna do with our children is give them access to that agency, allowing them to collect their own data, interrogate the ideas that are put before them. One of the first activities in the book is to actually ask a young child after you've read a fairy tale, whose perspective is this fairy tale being told in? So if we think about like the three little pigs, mm -hmm. most of us know the story in this omniscient narrator telling the story and we end up sympathizing with the pigs and we think of the wolf as the villain. And mm -hmm. we just receive that uncritically. But what if we were to then read John Shedska's really fantastic humorous satire called The True Story of the Three mm -hmm. Little Pigs by 
a wolf <laughs> mm -hmm. and the wolf goes through and mounts this unbelievable defense of how he had a cold and he was just wanting to borrow a cup of sugar to bake a cake for his grandmother's birthday and he accidentally blew down the houses when he sneezed and then of course those pigs died and he didn't want to waste the ham so he ate them right like it's mm -hmm. it's a preposterous sounding defense to adults but it is another perspective and one of the things we could ask a child is whose perspective is not being represented when I hear this story? What might an alternative reading be? When mm. we read The Wolf's Perspective, why are we discounting it? On what grounds, on what basis? But we take most things uncritically and our kids are left to filter this out. Interestingly, I um, asked my staff if they had read this book with their children. Well, I have a lot of millennials on my staff mm. and they remember reading that book when they were children. Mm -hmm. And a surprising number of them told me that when their parents read that book to them, they believed the wolf's story. <laughs> now, as an adult, you immediately know it's satire, but an eight-year-old, not as mm -hmm. clear. And so here's an opportunity to just start asking the question about perspective. Says who? You know, your child comes home and says, this is what I think is good to do today. Says who? Where are we getting this information? On what basis can we trust it? And we don't have to be super serious about it. It can be very playful, like with a fairy tale. But that is the foundation of what we want us to, we want all of us to be able to do as adults. And it starts at age five. Yeah, that's right. And a lot of the people or characters that we might take to be bad or presented as bad. I mean, honestly, if you if you really think about it, uh, in their mind, uh, they're good, or if not good, at least self-interested and have their own purpose for what it is that they're doing, right? And if if we could try to understand their perspective by thinking about it, I mean, that might lead to a better, you know, uh, holistic understanding, you know, might even make you understand, you know, maybe not in, in the aspect of like maybe a character, but let's say another person, right? If you could understand what their motivations might be, um, perhaps you won't necessarily be so quick to judge them. Uh, may, maybe there won't be, wouldn't be as much conflict, let's say. Uh, yeah. You know, it's an interesting comment because I think sometimes um, people think that I wrote this book to increase empathy between people. And that is sometimes a nice byproduct. But also critical thinking can lead you into a deeper sense of horror. One of the examples I like to mm -hmm. use is thinking about the fact, and I, I think you said this very well, that each person has a perspective that in their own mind creates a more beautiful life. Mm -hmm. So think of the current obsession we all have with true crime podcasts, mm -hmm. where we're curious about why a murderer thinks that a more beautiful life is only achieved if they get rid of this one person. Right, we right. want to understand the psychology behind that, not because we necessarily want to have more empathy, but because we're also like fascinated that a human being could look at the same set of circumstances and come to a completely different conclusion than mm -hmm. what we consider morally justifiable for most of the culture. The same thing happened during World War II. It was middle-class white church-going Christians who were persuaded that genocide was a good solution to improve their economics in Germany. How? Part of the reason we want to be critical thinkers is to be aware that any one of us at any time can erect a structure of beliefs that is self-protecting and harmful to others. And mm -hmm. so part of the way that we do that is actually being curious and fascinated 
by how other people do it, even when we agree that the choice they concluded was morally reprehensible. Right. Mm-hmm. And what this makes me think of is in psychotherapy and CBT in particular, we like to t- uh, teach our clients something called the distor- distorted or dysfunctional thinking styles, whatever. You can phrase it in different ways. There are like a million names for them. Uh, but the idea is that sometimes people essentially think, if I have like these pattern ways of thinking, that must mean I'm stupid or that must mean I'm severely mentally mm. ill. So I often have conversations with my clients to tell them like, no, no, we all have these distorted thinking styles. It's not just you. Sure, oh. when somebody struggles with depression, they have them more frequently and more intensely. Yes, you know, unquestionably. But all of us fall for these traps. And since you brought up true crime, I was thinking of the show Dahmer that just came out on Netflix. Yeah. And what's so interesting with the Dahmer show is that, the, you know, obviously we know about the my side bias where you kind of have this way of thinking like, you know, your side is somehow different from everybody else. So you would think like, we're the intellectuals, we're the intelligent ones, they're the idiots, they're uneducated, et cetera. So when you think of somebody like Dahmer, he was actually super coldly intelligent and he would think, well, you know, what's the difference between life and death? It's all really the same thing, right? But, and you know, spoiler alert here, uh, somewhere toward the end of the show, as he's about to die, he doesn't think that way about himself. He's like, wait, no, please don't kill me. Like, oh my God, like, no, 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 I'm so sorry. I only did those things like out of instinct and impulse. I really didn't want to kill those people. And it's so interesting because on the that one is. hand, the, the thinking here is like, well, he's like a sociopath. He doesn't feel feelings, and even though obviously, uh, well, maybe not obviously, but that's actually a misconception. He was never diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder. Mm-hmm. So the misconception is the way that he thinks about it is that like, oh, everybody just dies. And it's not a big deal to him if he probably lives and die or dies. Not true. He actually cared about himself. The my side bias, he just didn't care about anybody else. So I think it sort of speaks wow. to the fact that, all, yeah, all of us fall for these, you know, kind of distorted thinking styles. And it's very easy to say something like, well, you know, you going through that, that's fine. That's just a natural part of life. But then, oh, when I go through that, that's terrible. Absolutely. And we see it happen all the time in families where they have a really strong religious belief. So perhaps they don't believe that um, transgender is acceptable or being homosexual. And then one of their children comes out And they literally reconstruct the pattern of all their beliefs to protect the relationship with their children. Now, not everyone does that, but we see it frequently. And what that is, is that when it's personal to me, I go through the willingness to interrogate my own beliefs. When it's not personal to me, it's very easy to hold sort of a general consensus that protects me and protects the beliefs I've already chosen. So I think this my side bias is just so insightful, so accurate. I'm I'm happy you brought that up. Uh, yeah, that relates to a, a concept you you bring up in your book of uh, uh, encounters, right? Yes. Uh, where yeah. So uh, could you speak a little bit on that? How that can sort of help to develop uh, critical thinking? Oh yeah, I love that. So most of us gather information through three channels. One of the first channels is reading or what I'd call receptive information. So the black and white page, the screen where you're reading a blog or an article, reading is passive. It is under your control, absolutely. It is the safest, easiest way to access information. It's also the least influential because Mm. reading is self-selecting. You can read skeptically, or you can read openly. I know for me, if I'm scrolling through Facebook and some high school friend I haven't talked to in 30 years, posts an article and I see the byline and the headline and it doesn't align with me, my interior reaction is smugness. Hmm. I immediately am like, oh, that person doesn't know what they're talking about. I'm gonna read this article and find all the holes in it and I'm gonna judge this friend harshly. I think we all do that. That's at my side. 
Yeah, exactly. And it is going in with a lack of curiosity and a feeling that reading, even though I'm reading someone's arguments, I can be completely closed to the impact or the meaning of those arguments. So reading has value. It carries more data. It carries more information. But we have to be careful to recognize that we tend to read with that my side bias, with our own self-interest most firmly in place. So you'll see it all the time. There will be a complex war going on in Ukraine. And we've got all of these Monday morning quarterback journalists and um, people on Twitter with the solution, right? They've never lived in Ukraine. They don't speak the language. They've never left the country, but they know how it should be solved. So that's reading. Experience is sort of the next level. Experience would be like watching a movie or traveling to another country or eating the foods of those people or having a neighbor who is from another place or has a different perspective. You are, excuse me, you are immersed to a degree, but it's still somewhat under your control. So Mm -hmm. a good example would be reading a travel brochure about Spain. That's Mm -hmm. one level of knowing Spain. Traveling as a tourist is a better level. Now you're in the country, you're eating the food, but the experience is curated for you. You're in hotels, you're going to tourist locations, you are visiting, you don't have to permanently accommodate Spanish culture. Mm. So the third way we get information, and this one is the most potent at changing our minds, is what I call encounter. Encounter has to do with the power differential. Suddenly, Mm. you are not in control. You are not safe. You have to adapt to what you can't control. So if you move to Spain and you make that your home and you actually live in a Spanish neighborhood and have to learn the language and eat the foods and get a job there, suddenly your relationship to Spain is immediately more profound and Mm -hmm. it will alter your original sort of shallow opinions of it because now you will have depth to draw from. Encounter is a sustained interaction where you are not in control and you must adapt. Right. And it's minus judgment, I assume too. I mean, you always have judgment. I don't Mm -hmm. even know if we can get away from judgment, but Mm -hmm. here's what encounter does. It forces you to look at that judgment, right? So if you have a judgment of a certain belief in the population, I'm against abortion. And then my daughter shows up pregnant at 16. It's a whole different conversation in your head than what it was when it wasn't your daughter. Mm -hmm. So encounter forces us to examine those uncritical assumptions we've made. Oh, I love that. That's so interesting. Yeah, because in psychotherapy, I mean, essentially when you're in school, they teach you to withhold judgment, you know, whenever or all the time, actually. And so my my thinking was always like, you know, you can't, it's really hard to, you can't really just not judge. I mean, it's kind of impossible too. I mean, you kind of keep them in check. You make sure they sort of don't infuse the therapy sessions, but you can't just sort of stop them. I mean, it's not really possible. We all have values and we all kind of judge whether or not people meet those standards. But what's interesting is what you're essentially saying is that you're keeping an open mind about those judgments. You're not being married to them. Right. Right. And and you're being self-aware that you have them. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes when we say withhold judgment, now we pretend we're not being judgmental Mm -hmm. when everything in us naturally is. It's like unavoidable. You hear this language. I always say it, it lives in the body. I'm sure you talk about this in psychotherapy, but our bodies have reactions that are sending us the actual messages of how we actually feel. So your Mm -hmm. mind can say, I'm tolerant. I'm okay with people who are different than me. 
But then when you're put in close proximity to them, you're nervous. You're monitoring yourself. Why? Because actually the truth is you haven't learned to live with your discomfort or examine it. So when they're at a distance, you can sound like you have this beatific relationship to them. But when they're up close, suddenly now you're actually confronting your own bias. You're confronting that uncritical judgment that you thought was at bay, but is actually living inside you. Wow. So I love that. So essentially what we're saying is that anytime you think you're not judgmental, you're essentially kind of full of it. You might be. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I will say this, and I say this with as much love for the male gender as I can muster, mm -hmm. but I have had more podcasts with men who are hosting for this book than my previous one. And they come from all different political perspectives. And as a group, they think they're good critical thinkers, <laughs> similar to how much they think they're good drivers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And what I realized is that when you live inside your own body and you're aware of all the factors that have shaped a driving decision or have shaped a belief you have, you actually can't even see that there were other factors that you didn't consider. So you get in that car accident and you start re-examining all the choices you made leading up to it to exonerate yourself mm -hmm. because you're almost unwilling to believe there were factors you didn't consider. And it's the same with critical thinking. I would say that marginalized groups and women often have a better self-awareness meter because they have been criticized so much and they mm. find themselves having to re-examine what they assumed was true in order to shore up their own sense of identity. So that is one way that I think it's really important for us to examine our role in society and take a look at what benefits us, because that's one of the ways that we blind ourselves to not actually being open to new information. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean it's it's important to know, right, that that we backwards rationalize to to feel confident about our, you know, emotionally motivated. Well, action. that's just those other male podcasters. Not us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's just them. That's not us. No, no, but like we have to be aware that that we we have that in us, and and uh, to be uh, tolerant of that, right, and and to be able to be aware of that but still, you know, uh, take the right course of action, right? Still expose yourself to difficult situations, not necessarily. I mean, it's good to be confident. I mean, yes, it, it, it's incredibly important, but at the same time, being aware of our own biases and that you may not have the full picture. I don't know. I, I feel like that helps actually with confidence. And I would just add to that. Yeah, yeah. Also like, and that's, I think what you're trying to instill in your book is to learn not to be ashamed of it because a lot of this comes from shame. So especially with guys, <laughs> a lot of times why we think we're such phenomenal critical thinkers is because we don't want to admit that we're wrong. And for right. us to admit that we're wrong and somehow that makes us think that we're irrational, right? It's like black and white. You're either rational or irrational. Obviously it's not that simple, but yeah, that's the thing with dudes and egos, man. Like we don't want to say that we were wrong and we don't want to say, so again, it's like this, uh, we have to live up to the ideal of being rational thinkers. And we actually, not really, we don't, not in the way that it's sort of, again, you know, idealized, not in the way it's epitomized or presented or whatever. We can make mistakes and we can have flaws in reasoning. And what I love so much about like Danny Kahneman's work is, and, you know, going oh, back to what I was talking about with so therapy. Good. Yes. What I was talking about with therapy and teaching the distorted thinking styles is that all of us fall into these thinking traps. This is not, it's mm -hmm. not, it's not you, man. It's like, it's not that you're a dumb guy. It's literally that you're a human being and that's okay. You don't have to be ashamed of it. 
that book, Thinking Fast and Slow, I got to the end of it and I'm like, why am I writing a book? <laughs> this is the definitive work on how yeah. we all delude ourselves. So I really wanted to come from a different perspective, this you know notion of how to actually nurture that awareness so that we can at least make some inroads into um, a better thinking process. But yes, we are all so capable of being misled. And with the internet and the glut of information that we have coming at us right now, children in particular can be so vulnerable. Uh, and if you are raising them in kind of an authoritarian way, they may be trained to receive uncritically anything that has the appearance of authority. And what mm. we really want is for them to at least notice like, oh, I feel tempted right now to just automatically trust this because the website looks official. But mm. do I know that it's official? That's what I'm talking about. Like getting to the place where you are self-aware of the impact information or relationships are having on you so that you can just take that pause. And so for me, one of my tells I told you was smugness. Mm -hmm. Another tell for me is anxiety. Like I will suddenly feel threatened when somebody challenges a viewpoint of mine. I immediately second guess myself. Uh oh, if they challenge me with force, I must be wrong. And I have mm -hmm. had to learn through therapy. If they challenge me with force, it has nothing to do with my perspective. Mm -hmm. I can still be correct. I could learn from them, but the force has no meaning. The force is separate from the information. But, you know, if you've had domestic violence or abuse in your life, force feels coercive. So these are the things I've had to learn as a way to grow as a critical thinker. And I feel like, you know, the original title of the book was Raising Self-Aware Thinkers, because mm -hmm. I, I really think self-awareness precedes the critical thinking. Yeah. And also just to add to that, if somebody's arguing with force, chances are, I mean, high chances are they feel threatened themselves. It's like they yes. need to shove their belief down your throat because in some way they're going to use you as a mirror into their own psyches to say, yes, you see, I knew I was right. Exactly. Right. Mm -hmm. You become sort of a punching bag for um, building up their perspective. And this happens on social media every day of our lives. One of the suggestions, uh, this is a thesis in my book that I keep waiting for someone to challenge me on. Um, I really believe that the public school model that started about 150 years ago is partly responsible for the level of poor discourse on social media we face today. That the testing model where 32 students in one classroom with one teacher must get the same answer on every question on a multiple choice test has conditioned us to believe that there is a single right answer. And if an authority declares that everyone should fall into line and mm. agree with it. So we all hopped on social media with our sources of authority. And we thought, oh, well, all I have to do is state the fact. And obviously all my friends will agree. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's not what happened. And we're all in this sort of post-traumatic stress about the feeling that our sources of authority are of no value to people that we thought would align with us. And I think it's just been a slow 20, 30 year process of coming to terms with just how traumatic that experience has been for us. Yeah. What do you think would be the most optimal form of um, schooling children? Is it sort of, uh, sort of along the lines of maybe like a Montessori type of schooling or maybe something different? Or Yeah, I love Maria Montessori. I remember I had a graduate um, in graduate school. I had a professor who said if Maria Montessori had been a man, we would have a completely different school system today. Mm. Because at the time that she came along in the 20s, 
she was relegated to this weird like nurturing category and then Dewey kind of took over. But I would say this, that interrogative, exploratory, take the child seriously style of education is optimal. Uh, the Socratic method, right? This old yeah. style that we even saw in the late 1800s, like where we had the salons where people would read books and have what I call big, juicy conversations. That's what leads to the deepest growth. But we don't have time in a mechanized format. So in the mechanization of education, we turn it into sort of a factory production. And I would say that the modern homeschooling movement is a version of a critique of that. I mean, in its best mm. form, it, it, some of it's somewhat mechanized on its own, but in its best sort of most optimistic format, it is trying to reclaim this notion of education that is responsive to the complete person, not just mm. preparing them to be carbon copies of each other, according to a school district standards. Right. And can you get into that, like your foray into homeschooling and essentially why you thought it was fundamentally why you thought it was sort of the optimal kind of teaching method? I mean, optimal for lack of a better word, maybe that's sure. not the right one, but essentially why you thought it worked for you and a little bit about what it was like homeschooling your children, kind of how they grew up with it, what they think about it now even. Oh my gosh, these are great questions. I love talking about homeschooling. So I was living abroad at the time. I lived in North Africa and when my kids were starting to be born, and so I knew parents who home educated their kids. This would be the mid 1980s, which it was virtually unknown still in the States. But I started reading literature. Uh, Dorothy and Raymond Moore wrote a book called Better Late Than Early, which was all about delaying reading until your kids had this really solid foundation in literature and um, their competency to really observe and respond to pictures on the page and retelling stories and oral narration. And it really moved me. Uh, and then I started reading books all about this tailor-made education. And I already loved having babies. I had five of them. So obviously I was into children and I just didn't want to turn them over to the schools. I just thought this looks really fun. I want to hang out with them more. So I took on that task. We moved back to the States and really for me, what homeschooling became was this nurturing environment where my five kids got to build relationships with each other. And together, we all got to cultivate a family learning experience. I mean, I think I learned as much as they did. Mm -hmm. Over the years, of course, uh, they had various needs. And one of them was dysgraphic. Another one had ADHD. I had a daughter who didn't read until she was nine. I mean, there were challenges along the way. But because I only had five kids, not 32, and because I love them more than life itself, we met those challenges and we devoted ourselves to finding those solutions. Today, uh, all five are adults. I have a child who ended up um, becoming a computer programmer, self-taught, quit college because he figured it out on his own, has a wife, two kids and a great job. A daughter who traveled the world for two years after college, I uh, fell in love, got married, and lives in Mexico with her baby and has her own business. I have a son who went to Columbia Law School on a full ride and is a human rights lawyer in Central African Republic, wow. uh, working for the UN. Uh, another son who's self-taught in, in IT, he did his college at a great books program called St. John's. And then finally, my youngest daughter who just got her master's in marriage and family therapy and mm -hmm. is getting married in two weeks. So they've all Congrats. found like their own path. 
Uh, they all have different experiences of homeschool, but I think they all say net positive. Um, and a couple of them say they want to homeschool their kids. But I will also add, they did high school too. Uh, three of them did full-time, two of them did part-time and experienced public school as well and went to state universities. So that that's kind of our story. I don't have a preference in terms of everybody should homeschool or everybody should be Montessori. I think parents invested in their children's education, no matter what format you choose, is the way to go. Mm -hmm. And I think COVID showed parents that in the most alarming of ways, right? Mm -hmm. They were suddenly like, what? Is mm -hmm. this what's happening in school? Is this what I want my child to learn? And I loved finding out that parents suddenly cared. Like there is so much you can do at home, whether or not they're homeschooled, that nourishes and enriches the thinking mind reading, writing, discussion. Uh, there's so much you can do. That's why I wrote this book. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I, I always wondered what like homeschooling would be like. So anybody who's known me since I was a kid knows like I really hated school. I used yeah. to, I, yeah, I used to like, no, I, so I, just to be clear, like there are kids who like really dislike school. I mean, I, I used to cry when I had to go to school. I used to have nightmares about being in school. I still, oh. still to this day, I have nightmares of being a kid and having to go through school or like in my dream, I'll, you know, wake up in the dream and I'll be like, oh my God, it's eight o'clock. Oh no, I have to go to school. No. <laughs> and so for me, I remember I just couldn't understand. So look, don't get me wrong. I don't, necessarily have the same perspective of school now i have a much broader kind of perspective because i'm an adult but the thing is i remember when i was a kid i remember thinking like yo how how in the world would people want to do this so the teachers were pretty miserable and i under i understand that now i didn't doubt. um so the teachers were really miserable so the kids were even miserable more miserable probably because like they're kids and they just want to screw around most of the time i had probably i uh, undiagnosed what i think is adhd um and then on top of that like i remember thinking how in the world are we supposed to so it's not the same schedule now, but how are we supposed to from nine o'clock to three o'clock sit in the same room? Like now oh. you know, they kind of move around, right? Yeah. Sit in the same room, learn subjects that have like no soul to them whatsoever. Right. And I don't, I don't right. mean that spiritually. I mean, there's no enthusiasm for it. And then it's like, they, I couldn't even get how any of these subjects applied to my life. Exactly. So Right. So here yes. I am at like this environment where the teachers don't care. The kids don't care. I can't see how any of this is useful. And then when I go to the guidance counselor, the only thing he would tell me is, oh, well, you want to go to college, don't you? I'm like, that's the only reason why I'm here, because I want to maybe go to college. I'm like 10 at this time. I like maybe I want to go to college when I'm like 17, 18. And I just couldn't figure it out, man. It was like a dystopic movie or a novel. I was like, why would people want to do this? Oh, and then on top of that, you know, you have bullies. and It's like it's oh. just crazy. Well, that's why people homeschool. You just gave yeah. a much better argument for homeschooling than I did because I want to <laughs> softball it a little bit, but literally <laughs> you're a hundred percent right. And there are millions of kids like that. Uh, and one of the things that I think is frustrating is that there is so much good research in what it takes to learn. William Rhinesmith says that if something isn't going to be used immediately, it will not be learned we know that relaxed alertness does more to facilitate learning than this testing model that we have, this sort of drill and kill and this burn and churn. And yet we continue to do what doesn't work. I lucked out in the 1970s. I grew up in Malibu Canyon. I had all these hippy dippy teachers who had all been in the Peace Corps and they did amazing things. In my science class, we went to a creek every day for a month where all we did was watch nature, draw it, identify the plant life, the bugs, the animals. That was for a month. I had a teacher who, um, this is a great story. She had been in India and South America, and she decided to have us make these um, 
pots with designs on them that were like the Aztecs. So we made these clay pots in the class. You know, it's the 1970s. Ceramics are a big thing. We're painting the designs. She takes them, fires them, brings them back. And we come back. And at our desks is a hammer and this pot that we had just fired looking all beautiful. And she's like, all right, now smash that pot and put it in a box. And there's like a box, the pot and a hammer. So mm-hmm. we're like smashing our beautiful pots. We don't know why. Mm-hmm. The next day we come back to school and she's organizes us into three archaeological dig parties. Wow. We go into the back of Malibu Canyon that's on the backside of our school mm-hmm. with shovels. You're not allowed to have a shovel in school today, mm-hmm. <laughs> but we were then. And she sent us to these dig sites and she had buried all of our pots with cardboard sedimentary type layers so you could identify what year it had been, you know, and all this. Wow. And it it was incredible. And I remember my group couldn't find our pots (laughs) and I started crying (laughs) and uh, yeah, seventh grade. And the teacher came up to me and she said this perfect thing to say to me. She said, Julie, you're actually having a real archeological experience. (laughs) The other groups, I told them where to dig, but I guess I forgot where I buried yours. So (laughs) now you're really looking just the way an archeologist would. You're gonna have to dig till you find it. Well, then I was all fired up (laughs) because I thought not mine's better than theirs. And we did, we found all our stuff. We brought it back to the class. We glued everything back together. We created these little museum cards and set up a display. That's education. That's what learning is. You would have liked that, right? Mm -hmm. You would have done that. Yes. So that's, for me, why we homeschooled was those memories. My memories of school, ironically, um, helped me want to preserve that for my children. And I think when we're talking about critical thinking and learning, one of the dangers is that we think getting right answers is the superior way to live when being curious and inquisitive and expanding to include actually leads to the more satisfying education. Ultimately, Mm. when we are considering, let's say a political position or a social issue on the ballot, one of the models we have in our culture right now is what I call the conversion model. My idea is right, yours is wrong, and I'm gonna evangelize you (laughs) until Mm. you recognize the error of your ways and you join me in the right position. That leads to like the inquisition, it leads to wars, It's not an effective strategy. But what if we were raising children who believed that when they heard a different perspective, they needed to expand to include and account for that other perspective, Mm -hmm. right? So we take all these positions and we say, oh, okay, gun control needs to include hunters. Gun control needs to include victims of gun violence. Gun control needs to include police. Gun control needs to... include ex-military. Like if we actually take all the stakeholders and design a bill or a policy or a law that accounts Mm -hmm. for as many of those positions as possible, we actually make progress. But Mm -hmm. that is not our current culture climate. So can we start in the living room? (laughs) Let's fix this. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. And and sort sort of change gears here. This is like a question I have to ask for all the young adults or, or who knows how old some, some of our uh, watchers are, but uh, what, how, what role do you think video games sort of play in, oh. in critical thinking? You, th- you think video games are bad? I know that's, that's the, <clears throat> the popular view, uh, but could it be possible that maybe they're good? Oh gosh, 
Great question. It's the one I get the most out of any question. Video games. All right. So for my age group, 60 and above, uh, they're evil and demonic and nobody should play them. Right. But we never played them. So we have, you know, some weird romanticized notion of kick the can as though that was the height of health and happiness. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And it was not. It was just what we did at a time that that was what was available. Video games have all kinds of data and research attached to them now, some longitudinal studies that show that critical thinking skills are actually developed when you game. There Mm. is um, a surprising array of skills, considering resource management, logic, strategy, even things like finding hacks and cheat codes is all part of this critical thinking journey that kids go through. One of my favorite findings that I cite in the book, I hope I quote it correctly, but they showed that kids who play seven to 10 hours a week of video games had better mental health and lower social anxiety than kids who play none at all. That in fact, video games operate at a level of emotional self-regulation the same way watching TV or sports does for an adult today, right? Mm. You need to unwind, you know, decompress from the office. Uh, you had a hard day raising the baby and after she's in bed, you turn on The Bachelor. That mm. is what video games do for young people. They're feeling worked up. They're feeling anxious. They're feeling angry. They get on a game and they regulate. They mm-hmm. have a way to discharge some of that emotion. Right. They also show that they get to explore ideas and belief systems that they would never want to test in real life. My favorite example of this is Grand Theft Auto. I mean, (laughs) that game is nuts, right? Anybody who's played it. But this one study showed that it gave kids a meaningful way to engage with lawlessness without breaking the law (laughs) to sort of understand the dynamics and the dimensionality of what lawlessness is actually like. So there is... There is now some positive findings. We want to keep staying current. I know there is gaming addiction that is also talked about. But when Mm. we think about the billions of kids or young people who have played these games all over the world, what we're not seeing is that somehow this is leading them to all kinds of antisocial behavior. For most people, it's similar to being on the local basketball club, you know, playing a club sport. Mm. Right, right, right. So it's like outside of obviously heavy narcotics, I mean, what we're essentially saying is that video games are almost like anything else where in moderation, there are positive benefits. It's like it's only if you overdo it, right? Like just like with television. I mean, if you binge watch television all day, you're clearly struggling with depression. Uh, But one uh, element to video games is uh, there's a lot of problem solving going on. Right. Puzzles and... No, Alan, I'm agreeing with you. I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was agreeing with you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you were saying you were saying versus television, right? Like television feels even more passive. Yes, a hundred percent. But like all, I like what you said about moderation. I also think that it's really important to realize that the computer is an adult tool. And that feels intoxicating and cool to a child. It's like letting them learn to drive in your car. Mm -hmm. What we usually do when we're trying to moderate video games is we're like, get off the screen. And then what do we expect them to do instead? Sit on the couch, read a book. So I say, if you want your kid, this is controversial, but I'm going to say it anyway. You want your kid off the computer, 
hand them a book of matches and tell them to start a fire in your backyard. They will Mm -hmm. get off, Mm -hmm. right? Like give them something worthy of getting off for. Can you teach them to use a sewing machine? Can you let them learn how to use a power drill? Could Mm -hmm. they build a treehouse? Could they make food with your KitchenAid mixer? Adults are so careful around machines, but kids want access. So the computer and the screens feel weirdly safe on one level. That's why we let our kids do them. We don't want them messing up our kitchens baking. But what if we ask them to get off the computer and we teach them how to use a power drill? They'll get Mm. off. They'll be interested. It's worthy. Right. Yeah. And even just thinking about when I going back to when I was a kid, uh, I remember with video games, it was like, as opposed to school, which always made me feel like crap about myself. Uh, I remember video games actually when I, especially when I used to go to school to play them, video games used to actually make me feel great about myself. Like there yes. were certain levels that you get through, right? If you, you know, you're playing a wrestling game, you're winning championships. If you're playing football, you're also in some sort of like, you're playing on the internet. You're, you're also in some sort of league, maybe online, mm-hmm. but like, yeah, these things make you feel good about yourself. And it's so interesting that in school, I look, maybe it's different now. I haven't, obviously been in elementary middle school in ages uh but like i remember there wasn't really much of a sense of like hey or not even a care of like hey are you good at this do you how does this affect your self-esteem i mean obviously the self-esteem movement was a thing but that was a nightmare but there was never really the sense that like these like the teachers cared about what kids actually thought about themselves in the context of learning it was more like you have to do this and if you don't you're breaking the law so like whenever i would cut school it was never like okay like what's going on with you uh how come you don't enjoy this so much you know how can we make you feel better about your ability to do it my self-efficacy was super low at the time it was more like oh you're breaking the law stop breaking the law and then with teachers it was like well you have to study because like i'm an authority figure and i'm telling you you should right i mean i get that i understand that that's part of why i have to do the work but it doesn't really make me especially who me i'm just a kid i don't know any better i'm not motivated to do it just because you told me so especially when there's this thing that i know it's not going to make me feel good about myself because i'm struggling with it so much Can I ask you, because this is interesting, my boyfriend had a very similar experience of school Mm -hmm. and he is a lawyer today. Mm. So that is an advanced degree. You have an advanced degree. And what was it that turned the corner for you? When did you discover a mechanism that helped you feel engaged with learning? Because clearly you have. Yeah. So I actually love that question. And it was when I got to college. So I ended up, um, so I received a GED after I flunked out of high school, essentially. I ended up with like one credit. I kid you not. And it was a gym class. It was a gym class too. So I, I, I love your story right now so much. I can't even tell you. Yeah, but, yeah People are always like, how, how is this even possible? Yeah. So literally I, I cut pretty much all of high school. I ended up getting a GED at some point. I think it was like 17. I went to see just really quickly. I went to see the attendance woman lady at the time. And so she tells me, look, man, there are two options. You can either, we could get you like into some sort of job core, or you could get your GED and go to community college. So I said, okay, I'll get my GED. So I went through the classes. That was okay. Got my GED, went to community college, fast forward. Um, and then I took, and I think I just was randomly taking classes at this point. I was like liberal arts majoring because of course, what am I, what is a high yeah. school dropout really going to major in? Sure. So I majoring in liberal arts at the time. And then I, for whatever reason, I really became interested in history. And I started taking, uh, I took ancient history 
weekend and I also took uh, a shout out to Rick Medro, who I think watches our podcast. Uh, so I also took European history from Napoleon to Hitler. And so the teachers were actually what you were describing earlier. They were super engaging. So we would have these really dynamic discussions that made you feel like this stuff actually matters and it's interesting and exciting and important. So little by little, as I got into it, it's, I was started feeling good about myself. I was like, oh, I really understand the information. It feels like, you know, the plot to a movie or like a really interesting TV show. And I feel like I'm following along. I'm getting dates, names, uh, sort of, you know, different forms of systems of government, uh, different sort of uh, circumstances that were plaguing people at different times. And then, so I started doing really well. And then I think I figured, you know, there's a lot of philosophy in this. And I started really falling in love with philosophy because to me, the question was always like, what's the purpose of any of this? Yes. School. Yeah. Why am yes. I doing any of this? Like, why does any of this matter? So then I was like, oh, wow, there are people who are trying to answer these questions too. So I started really getting involved in philosophy and I took a class and this is a person who I mentioned frequently. I took my college mentor's class. His name was Tim Stroop. He used to teach at John Jay College. So I taught his, I went and took his class. He was teaching that. And then so essentially as we were doing the work, he was, he kind of like, he really motivated me. And he's like, you know, you really kind of have an aptitude for this. Like, first of all, he's like, you're a psychology major. What are you even doing here? Why are you taking ethics and law out of all things? And I'm telling him, I'm like, oh, I just really like philosophy. I like critical thinking. I like having the ability to actually think through material that, and unfortunately in psychology, you don't really do because psychology mm. is pretty much, it's a science, right? It's multiple choice. You're regurgitating right. diagnoses, treatment right. plans, whatever. So I was like, I like classes where you could think, right? Not exactly true, but sure. Uh, so I like classes where you could think. And then, so he was telling me, he's like, look, man, you're like, you know, you're doing really well at this. He's like, you're one of my best students. And he's like, I really appreciate all the effort that you put into it. And he's like, you know, I just, I want you to kind of continue doing, doing what you're doing during the class. He's like, you're leading a lot of discussions. It makes me like really happy that, you know, you're here. It makes me happy to think that you're coming in there every single day. Right. Um, so for me, it was a level and I just want to be fair to some of my elementary school teachers. Some of them were definitely really motivating and that sure. was somewhat sustaining, but I never had that level of motivation that I had in college because I felt as though the kind of the impetus and what would you call it? The sort of, I felt like the sort man, and I hate this because it's going to sound so not cruel, but a little bit critical. So I felt as though the the care that college professors had were night and day compared to the care and consideration of elementary elementary school teachers, sure. right? So for elementary school teachers, again, just to be clear, I understand a lot of them are severely underpaid. They're severely overworked. It's very hard for them to focus on thirty kids in college. It's about maybe fifteen. So he had a different level, and then also he was tenured. So I think for for college professors, it seemed like for them it was super meaningful to make sure that they're leaving something behind that like the kids that they were teaching were their legacy and i felt as though for tim especially because i disagreed with him on so many things during that time for him to care about me so much and to say to me like look the reason why i'm giving you these alternative perspectives is because i want you to become a great thinker he's like it's not that i'm trying to defeat you or making you look bad or making you feel stupid he's like i actually want to make you become better he's like there's so much potential that i see in you and you don't even have to agree with me i just want you to know how to think and think well and critically reason and so from elementary school, I just never felt I got that. Again, it was more like, I'm the authority figure. This is what you need to do. And if you're not going to do it, I'm just going to send you to the principal's office or whatever, or give you detention or whatnot. And for me, punishment just not only doesn't work, but it just makes me feel defeated. And in college, you never got that. They treated you like an adult. And it was like, look, I'm going to try to motivate you. And I'm going to show you where I think you're failing. But if you don't want to do it, you don't have to do it. You don't have to be there. And I love that uh, number one, that degree of motivation, obviously, but also the degree of freedom that I never had in high, in high school or elementary school. Well, in those K through 12 grades, of course, they're trying to hit certain kinds of standards 
by requirement, by law, right? So college is optional and you pay to be there. But with traditional education, K through 12, uh, it's a requirement to go to school and then it's a requirement to live up to those standards. So for those teachers who are listening right now, I have nothing but sympathy for you. It is so challenging to do that job, to hit those behavioral markers, to hit those test markers. And then students who are not just your typical sit in the desk, perform because they have to kinds of kids do feel tormented by that environment. And I love your story about college, a community college professors are some of the best out there actually, because they don't have to publish. So they actually care about their students and they have that capacity to really engage with them. But that is a powerful and amazing story. Thank you for sharing that. With yeah, me. Thank, you. thank you so much. And, and just to be clear, so one of my good friends, her name is Elaine Morrison. She was a teacher in the public school system for about 30 plus years. And she's actually, again, I don't want to be too critical. I was going to say one of the few, but she is one of the most phenomenal public school teachers I've ever met. So I never obviously took her class uh, because I only met her when I was a teenager, but her ability to get through to kids, to make sure that they understand that she cares and to take each of their perspectives seriously was literally college level. She could have been a professor at any point. Mm. And for her, she chose, uh, I'm assuming public school, at least partially because it, it was so limited in terms of the teacher's ability, willingness, whatever, to actually impart what I would think of as wisdom in their kids. Yeah. And and Julia, I have a question for you. Um, you know, even looking at the title of the book, right? Uh, you know, a parent's guide to growing wise kids in the digital age. And specifically what, what gets me there is digital age, right? Yes. And yeah. So, I mean, with the advent of uh, social media and, you know, attention spans, at least on average, getting sort of lower and lower, how, how can we sort of maybe encourage our uh, children to be deeper thinkers, uh, to think more, uh, less hyper-focused, more sort of um, from, from depth? Yeah, great question. I think the most shocking research for me when I wrote the book was that we were harming this deep attention, deep focus attention state that we had cultivated really since about the middle ages when literacy uh, started to become more widespread in the population. So at the point that the culture in the Western culture, we'll talk from the Western world point of view, was able to establish universities, libraries, monasteries, where people were basically protected from violence and could quietly read and think deeply. We cultivated this part of our brains, which has resulted in this unbelievable flourishing of humankind and the production of industry and technology unparalleled in history. So mm. all of that has happened because of reading and safety. Honestly, those are kind of the two keys. What happened when the internet came along, and especially with the advent of the cell phone in particular, is that we have been returned to a primal kind of attention state, what is called hyper-focus attention state. This is what we used when we were, you know, hunters and gatherers or foragers. We're waiting for the grunt of a warthog in the bushes to adapt and change. We're noticing the downtick in temperature, so we'll quickly go take shelter. So we're constantly on a state of alert which means we cannot spend time in a deep focus attention state because we're trying to survive. What's happened is the pings, the red dots, the little bells of notification have catalyzed the memory of our biology. 
And we are living like the next comment on Instagram is a life or death threat. <laughs> and it is popping us out of that feeling of safety and quiet that we need for a deep focus attention state. So this one book that I really loved by Nicholas Carr called The Shallows, How the Internet is Damaging Our Brains, he makes the case that it's really important to preserve and protect deep reading. Now, that was super challenging to me, even when I read it, because I didn't kind of want to admit that I had lost my deep reading edge. I've always been a big reader, but I had to confront the fact that I was reading books the way I looked at websites. I was starting to like skip around chapters, start in the index, you know, like I was treating them a little bit like a website. And I chose to follow his path, which was to take 15 minutes a day at the start and just put my phone in the other room. So, you know, similar like when you're on a diet, you don't leave the potato chips on the counter, you put them away so they don't bug you. Mm -hmm. So I took my phone, put it in another room, and then I would read and it. I would feel squirrely for the first 12 minutes. I'd be like, ha, ha, and I kept reaching for the non-existent phone, you know, <laughs> and I'm yeah. like, oh, this book is so boring. And then something magical would happen at minute 15. And I'd notice I would calm down and drop in. And then I didn't want to stop. And wow. I just keep reading. And here's the thing. I have a strong memory of reading like that because I'm 60. The internet didn't come along until I was like 35. So if we want that for our children, I suggest in the book that we just start doing a family reading time. 15 minutes a day is plenty but it helps if you're all in the same room and you do it together and you get those phones and everything turned off and out of the space and just protect and preserve the quality of deep attention because that is something they will need going forward in their lives. And it helps you, it helps you this way. When you're reading and you're not online, there's no one waiting for a comment, a like button, a heart, a thumbs down. You get to be with a perspective and no one knows your thoughts. Mm -hmm. You get to have secret thoughts about this perspective. No one has to know. And that mm. allows you to start making space for some of the things that are uncomfortable to admit in public. Wow. I love that so much. Mm -hmm. All right. That's a really great point to end it off on. Alan, final questions for Julie before we wrap up. Ah, yes. Uh, Julie, if we wanted to follow you, follow your work, and of course, buy the book, uh, where can we do that? Uh, thanks. Um, so my company is bravewriter.com. So if you're interested in writing or language arts programs or classes for your kids, check that out. The book is available at my book website, raisingcriticalthinkers.com or any outlet, any book outlet. Uh, and if you want to follow me on social media, I am personally active on Instagram and my Instagram account is Julie Bravewriter. Yeah, awesome. you have a great following on Instagram. I was like, holy uh, moly. And you have great content too. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. You guys are amazing. This was just a total joy. This is really fun. Like the time. So fun. Yeah, I know. Time. Yeah, thank you. And thank you obviously so much for all of your insight and wisdom. This was so great. All right, Julie, have a good night. We'll talk thank to you, you soon. You too. Thank Bye. you. All right. Awesome. So everyone, if you want to follow us, follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, where it's Seize underscore podcast on Twitter. Like, subscribe, hit the, hit the bell, bell on YouTube. YouTube. And once again, thanks for watching and see you next time.